and thank you for tuning in to Faith Worship Center's weekly sermon. We hope you are inspired and encouraged by this week's message as we all live to bring more of heaven to earth. Um, as, as I was thinking about you all today on the way down, and um, I was thinking of your name, Faith Worship Center, mm. and the picture of Abraham um, came to my mind when he was asked to sacrifice Isaac. And I felt like you two have been that. Like, to me, faith worship is that picture, mm. that, that extreme obedience to do whatever God would ask, Amen. to know that God will provide, even if and no matter what. And you have set the example of that for here, and you have a whole lot of people that are following in your footsteps of just totally laid down for God's purposes, no matter what he's asking you to do, even if it's sacrificing an Isaac in your life, knowing that God is going to provide, and he has a way that I don't know of, but his way is better. So I just want to encourage you with that. You guys are people of extreme faith, and your life is worship. So my husband's going to have a great word for you today. You ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? So here we go. Amen. Amen. Yes, I want to echo Angel's words. Bless Daryl and Lynn. They have been a source of strength to us, a source of encouragement to us, a stabilizing force. Angel can attest that. There have been times when she would look at me and say, well, at least Daryl and Lynn are still there. But it is good to know that we have brothers and sisters all over the place. And if you're breathing, you know that the last eight or nine months have been weird. Really, really weird. We have not been this way before. I don't think anybody that's living on this planet has ever been this way before. We don't know where we are, what to expect, but we know, as that song said, we come to an unshakable kingdom. And I love that we have an unchanging king to go with it. Unshakable and unchanging. So I just want to encourage you before I share what I believe God put in my heart to encourage you. Because we need to be encouraged, encouraged, filled with courage, enthusiastic, encouraged. But as I was uh, praying this morning, I remembered this past week, um, we have this big old factory as part of our uh, church facility. And we had stored in the factory for about the last 13 years a big antique fire truck from the local fire department. It was sitting under this big cover. And they finally decided to move it this past week, but it wouldn't start, so they had to push it by hand. So they had about eight or so big firemen there. They're pushing this fire truck out, trying to push it out the door. And they had this ramp set up to go onto a flatbed truck. And they were doing really good until they hit the ramp. And then all momentum stopped. And they they were pushing and pushing, and they backed up, and they tried again. And every time it hit the ramp, it just stopped. So I happened to walk into the, the building at that point, And all these guys are straining against this fire truck. And there's a little old guy sitting there steering it. And all I did was I came up behind them and I just leaned my 170-pound frame into the fire truck with them and it started to move. You never know. You never know how much momentum you can create by keeping your shoulder to the plow. 
We are in a season where we can't just look at situations, throw our hands up and, and concede and, and just give in to what is. You and I are called to put our shoulders to the plow until that thing is out of our factory. Because that was taking up valuable space. And many times things in our life take up valuable space and we get so used to seeing it. I mean, I just forgot it was there until they took the cover off and I realized, wow, this fire truck, it's a beautiful fire truck. But this fire truck has been sitting here for 13 years and it has become part of our landscape. And I want to encourage you that there are things in your landscape right now that do not need to be there anymore. There are things that this whole season has busted wide open and I believe it is God's love and grace to let us see some things that we don't like. Let us experience some things that are uncomfortable for a purpose because he wants to make room for something else. We have plans for that factory space. We have plans to expand into there. But as long as that truck was there, we had to keep working around it because we didn't want to damage it. So it was cramping our style. So now it's gone. And God wants you to know that there are things in your life in this season. And I believe God is holding this gaping, gaping wound open in our nation for a reason. There are those who are saying, just close it up. Let's get on with life. Let's, let's get past all this. And God is saying no. Because there are things that we need to see. We see the things out there, but God is also saying, you need to see some things in here. Church, we need to see some things. Because there are some old antiques that need to go. And we may have tried to get them out before. And uh, it ain't budging, it ain't budging, and not budging, it's not going anywhere. And then God says, keep your shoulder to the plow. And your prayer, one more prayer. I didn't really push that hard. I just put my weight into it and it started to move because that's all it needed. How much weight does your prayer carry? How much weight does your persistence carry? How much weight does your integrity carry in this hour? Not to cave, not to give in, not to look at things and just say, well, it's not time to say, well, it's time to say, whoa. There are things that God wants to do in this hour. And I want to encourage you that as God is holding this open for all of us to see, this is a global thing. There are things coming out globally. You know, people have cried out. If there's intercessors in this room, you know what I'm talking about. You have cried out for righteousness. You have cried out for justice. You have cried out for what is hidden in darkness to be exposed. There are people who have cried out for years for this moment. But when the moment comes on us, I was like, oh, I didn't pray for this. Is this what I was praying for? God says, this is what you've been praying for. Because there are things that have to be exposed. There are things that have to be opened. Because if they're not, everything's going to go right back to the way it was. You know, when this whole thing started, the, the new Christian buzzword was a new normal. God's doing a new normal. There's no such thing as normal in the kingdom of God. Because what is today may change tomorrow. Normalcy is walking with the king. Normalcy means that you are willing to adjust and adapt in a, in a moment, in an instant. That we have no place of comfort in setting roots in my way of doing things. That fire truck was set in its place. And God said it's time to move some of those things out of the way. So I want to share with you a few things to encourage you. That in this hour we have an opportunity. The body of Christ has an opportunity. To keep our shoulder to the plow. To keep our shoulder to the junk. To keep going until the thing moves out of our life. There's a force in nature. 
called inertia. And inertia is a property of a body of mass, anything that has mass. You have inertia right now that's holding you in the chair, not just gravity. But inertia is a property that a body that has mass exhibits to stay in the state it's in. A body at rest tends to want to stay at rest until a force is exerted against it that overcomes the inertia to stay where you are. And the Holy Spirit is exerting a force. And if we keep looking out there, we're going to miss that Jesus is pushing us in here. Jesus is pushing the fire truck out of our warehouses. Jesus is putting his shoulder to the plow because he needs to make room for a harvest. And that building to us represents the harvest. And there are things in your life, in my life, in our churches, in the church in general, that Jesus is getting in there and he's saying, who is going to put their shoulder to the plow with me and push this crap out of here? Who's going to get involved? So I want to encourage you, if you've been a prayer, keep praying. If you haven't been a prayer, start praying. If you're thinking about it, think no more. You have an invitation. You are welcome to the team. I want to share a few things in a couple different places. I'm not sure where they're going to land, but we're going to start all the way back in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had an interesting job to do. He was called probably when he was about 12, 13, maybe 14 years old. How would you like to be called as a prophet to a nation at 14 years old? Not only that, but the message he had to deliver was probably the most unpopular message that the nation of Israel wanted to hear. It was a message that if you do not repent, if you do not change, if you do not stop what you're doing, if you don't get rid of the idols, they were worshiping Baal and Molech. Baal was, part of the worship to Baal was, was so much sexual perversion. And the worship of Molech was sacrificing children. This nation, the world, has been worshiping Baal and Molech for generations. And the prophets have risen, and the prophets have spoken, not so much to the world, but to the church. And the church, by and large, has not wanted to push this monster out of the garage. We don't want to touch it. We tried, and then it doesn't move. And we just, I mean, the whole abortion issue to our young people has become just another social justice issue. It really has. You talk to some young people, and they have no clue what abortion is really connected to except the rights of a woman. Because the thing has been sitting in our garage, taking up way much space for too long. Jeremiah was speaking to a group of people, the people of God, who had abandoned God and brought in Molech and Baal. And the message and the mantra from the Jewish leaders were, We have the temple, we're safe. We have the temple, we're safe. As long as we have the temple, we're safe. Jeremiah, shut up. We've got the temple. We can't lose if we've got the temple. And Jeremiah's message was, God is abandoning his temple. You don't have the safety that you thought you had. And if you read history, you'll know that 70 or so years later, Babylon came and destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, and took almost all of the nation captive. So Jeremiah had this wonderful ministry of going around to the cities and villages proclaiming that God wanted this thing out of the temple. They were setting up altars to Baal and Moloch in the temple. And God wanted it out. So let's pick up in chapter 11. And I'm going to start at verse 16. 
Then the Lord told me, this is Jeremiah speaking what the Lord told him, about the plots of my enemies that were making against me. I was like a lamb being led to the slaughter. I had no idea they were planning to kill me. Let's destroy this man and his words, they said. Let's cut him down so his name will be forgotten forever. This is one of Jeremiah's moments. I didn't sign up for this moment. God reveals to Jeremiah, this young kid, that you've been doing what I've asked you to do, but the people want to kill you. Your message is not popular. They don't want to hear it. They're plotting to kill you. Now, how would you react? Here's how he reacted. Verse, or chapter 12. This is his complaint. When he hears that there's a conspiracy, this is what he says. Lord, you always give me justice, and when I bring my case before you, so let me bring this complaint. You ever want to complain? Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why are evil people so happy? You have planted them. They have taken root and prosper. In other words, right under your nose, this is all happening. What is wrong with you, God? Don't you see this? Don't you understand that these things are going on under your watch? They're happening while you're watching. It says, you have planted them and they have taken root and prospered. Your name is on their lips, but you are far from their hearts. But as for me, Lord, you know my heart. You see me and test my thoughts. Drag these people away like sheep to be butchered. Set them aside to be slaughtered. What is going on here? God, you see all the wicked people. You see the wicked of your own people. Those who have abandoned you. Do something about those wicked, dirty, rotten sinners. For you know my heart, God. I'm always with you. So butcher them. You think God is revealing something about the prophet's heart? You know my heart, God. I'm not like them. Those dirty, rotten, no goods out there. Butcher them all. Didn't David pray the same kind of prayers? Kick their teeth in. Is it wrong to pray prayers like that? It gives you the opportunity to see what's really going on. Because God just listens. Listen to his response. Jeremiah keeps going. Set them aside to be slaughtered. How long must this land mourn? Even the grass of the field has withered. The wild animals and the birds have disappeared because the evil in this land. For the people have said, the Lord doesn't see what's going on. And here's the Lord's reply to Jeremiah. If racing against mere men makes you tired, how will you race against horses? If you stumble and fall in the open ground, what will you do in the thickets near the Jordan? If you're racing against men and it makes you tired, the word tired there means offended, impatient, and disgusted with. Not physically tired. So emotionally spent that this stuff still goes on, that we're still fighting these battles. And God is saying, Jeremiah, if mere men, if people, if systems that are corrupt are getting you so upset that you want to kill them, how are you going to really fight my true enemies? The image of a horse was always representative of God's true enemies. The nation of Egypt had horses. The Assyrians had horses. The Babylonians had horses. The Israelites did not. Jeremiah. 
If you are annoyed, impatient, and disgusted at your culture, and you're willing to throw in the towel, how are you going to fight the real enemies that are behind what's going on right now? How are you really going to fight those battles? And this is the way he described it. If you stumble and fall in the open ground or when there's peace. You know, we are experiencing things in this nation we haven't experienced before. But if you live in other nations, I have friends in Sri Lanka and my daughter lives in the Dominican. There are things that have been going on and are going on that make what we're dealing with a picnic. Talk about oppression. Talk about government control. Talk about no freedoms. Look at the church of China. We have no idea. So God is telling Jeremiah, if you're stumbling over this, what are you going to do when I expose my real enemies? What are we going to do when the real enemies are exposed for the church to really see? We are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, spiritual authorities, and wickedness in high places. Those are the things that God is exposing in this hour. And if the church is not ready to move forward, if the church is not ready to stand without screaming judgments at the people, slaughter them all! If we can't control ourselves and see beyond that, then the enemy is going to continue to do what the enemy has been doing because we're fighting the wrong battle. Because there's something in the church that this season has exposed that we need to get a handle on. It's been present since Adam and Eve left the garden. Fast forward about 1,400 years. Go to the book of Mark. I love the disciples that Jesus picked to be his A-team. Totally dysfunctional. It would be a crew of people that you would probably look and say there is no way that this group of people is going to accomplish anything for the kingdom. Why in the world did Jesus pick this group of people? Because he wanted to expose a problem that all of us have in order for us to carry the torch to the next generation. Things can stop with this generation. You know how many generations of young people have come and have gone because the church walked away and left the thing sitting in the garage and just telling their children, well, you know, we tried a couple years ago to get rid of this thing, but it ain't budging, so we're just going to build around it. And Jesus is saying, that's not my intention. So Jesus is with these 12 men for a little over three years. And if you read the Gospels, you'll see that during those three years, there were moments when the A-team turned into the D-team, where they began to argue and fuss and posture about who was really the greatest among them. Which one of us is really the best? I mean, he's called the 12 of us, but it seems like Peter, James, and John get special treatment. So they're arguing, and Jesus caught them more than once arguing. So then we come to this scene. This is near the end of Jesus' ministry. He just makes the grand pronouncement that his church is going to be founded on a revelation that Peter blurted out. And he made sure that Peter understood that Peter didn't come from your head, it came from the Holy Spirit. That the revelation that Jesus is the cornerstone, the revelation that Jesus is the foundation of his church, just came out of Peter's mouth. And Jesus affirms him for that. 
And Peter, in all of his spiritual pride, puffs himself up. Said, I knew I was the best. I knew I was his, number one. And then Jesus begins to tell his disciples his real mission. He says, I have to go back to Jerusalem. I have to go back and face the religious crowd. I have to go back and face Rome. I have to go back and face them, but I'm not afraid because the enemy has nothing on me. But I have to go back. They're going to they're persecute me, and they're going to kill me. And on the third day, I'll rise again. Somehow they missed that part. But then Peter, listen to what happens here. Verse 31 of chapter 8. Then Jesus began to tell that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. And as he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. The word reprimand is the word rebuke. It was an official rebuke. Rebuke means that the person who's doing it has the authority to do it. This was a legal, official rebuke. Peter took his new title as founder, rock. Peter, you are my rock. He took it and he began to say, well, if I'm really as good as that, then I can tell Jesus what to do. I'm going to reprimand him for saying such nasty things. Doesn't he know that we are just hitting our stride? Doesn't he know that the crowds are just starting to really rally around this whole Jesus, Messiah, King thing? Doesn't he know that we are at the place where we can take this thing to the next level? That we can truly take over the world and the kingdom of God and the glory of Israel is going to be restored. Doesn't Jesus know this? What is he talking about this nonsense? So he pulls him aside. Imagine interrupting Jesus in the middle of a sermon. Pulling him aside and say, you know, I know you have well intentions. But I think you're a little misguided. Your willingness and sacrifice for people is admirable, but it's not serving the purpose here. This whole self-sacrifice thing is not working anymore. You keep preaching this, you're going to lose the crowds. You have got to stay the course. You are the Messiah. You may not want to put the crown on, but the people are going to crown you. Don't talk about this death, Jerusalem, cross, bloody stuff. That's what Peter was saying. You ever feel like that? Jeremiah did. God, what are you doing? What is wrong with you? Don't you know? I have preached your word and preached your word, and it's gotten worse and worse and worse. When are you going to kill these people? When are you going to step in and say enough is enough? And all God wanted to point out was the condition of Jeremiah's heart. Because spiritual arrogance and pride had taken over the ministry. Spiritual arrogance and pride had crept into this group from the very beginning. If you read a couple other passages, James and John, Jesus called them the sons of thunder. They were walking through villages, preaching, and one particular town did not necessarily want to hear what they had to say and rejected them. So as they walk out of the town, John and James pull Jesus aside and say, shall we call fire down from heaven and burn up these dirty, rotten sinners? They were only taking a cue from their hero, Elijah. And so, well, if he did it, we can do it. So, Jesus, you give us the word, and we're going to call fire down from heaven and burn these dirty, rotten sinners up. Jeremiah all over again. And Jesus turned around and looked at him and said, you don't know what spirit you're of. 
Were they dirty, rotten sinners? Were we dirty, rotten sinners? Did we want fire called down from heaven to burn us up? But these great men are asking Jesus to burn up the sinners. Step in there and do something. And it came to the conclusion or the climax in Jesus' ministry with these men where after three years, they still didn't get it. And the depiction of the Last Supper, let me just finish reading this before we move to that point. He took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Verse 33, Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and all those who were following him. And then he reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Now, that word Satan can mean a, an actual title of, a, of an individual, but it was used as also a description of what the person was doing, an adversary. Peter, you are an adversary to my work. How would you like to be rebuked like that? Yeah, I appreciate your prayers, Jim, but you're being an adversary. By praying those prayers, send fire down from heaven, God. You're being an adversary to my kingdom. Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. Because if I burn them up, i got to burn you up. But Peter and the gentleman didn't see it. Here's what he says. He took Peter aside and he began to... Rep- or Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and he reprimanded Peter. Get away from it. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not God's. Then calling on the crowd that was joined with them, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up all that you have, give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and the sake of the good news, you will save it. But what does it profit you if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in this adulterous and sinful day, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you of that person when he returns in glory with the Father and all of his angels. Can you imagine the silence that must have fell over that crowd? Is this really your mission, Jesus? What happened to the the big white horse? We were planning the celebration. We were planning the coronation. You're going to Jerusalem and you're talking about being crucified. We're going to Jerusalem. We're talking about a coronation. What is going on here? There's a train wreck. There's, a, there's an opposition of, of directions. Jesus said you're setting your heart merely on human understanding of what's going on. And the church needs to take a step back out of its frothing anger and breathe. Because I'll tell you this, this door is open and more mess is coming out. And there's going to be more opportunities to put on our snooty spiritual attitudes And Jesus is going to say, I'm not going to release you to go in until I take something out of you. Jesus is not going to release his precious harvest to arrogance, to superiority. There was another time when the crowd was following Jesus and the same two brothers. They were trouble. Jesus, you know, in the town we were just in, there's a group of people who are doing ministry, but they're not part of us. Should we tell them to stop? What did Jesus respond? Oh, guys, come on. 
If they're not against us, they're for us. Or they're not part of our stream. They belong to that group over there that starts with the B. They're not part of our group. They're not part of the remnant. What does Jesus say? Shush. If they're not against me, they're for me. They may not be doing what we're doing, but if they're not hindering the gospel, don't hinder them. If they're standing for truth, even if the revelation is still just a little baby's revelation, then encourage them to grow in that truth. But don't come against them. Don't put on your spiritual superiority that we have arrived because we're charismatic Pentecostal Christians. And of course, we're not the Corinthians. We have risen above that. Because now we have this dimension of the Holy Spirit. What would Jesus say to us? Come on, guys. Open your hearts. You're thinking through your heads. These two brothers even had the audacity. I think maybe it was the mom who had the audacity. The mother of James and John gets involved. Says, pulls Jesus aside and says, you know, I know you're going to set this cabinet up when you get coronated. When you become president, you're going to have a cabinet. I want my two boys to be your right-hand men. I wonder what Jesus would have said to the mom. I wonder what Jesus said to her. He probably looked at the, the brothers and went, you've got to be kidding Now I know where it comes from. But all through the ministry of Jesus, this was happening. And Jesus never really put the brakes on and stopped because he wanted this thing to be exposed in its fullness. He wanted these men to see what was really inside of them. And the only way to do that was to let them walk right into the trap of being exposed. So now we come to the Last Supper. The last meal Jesus is going to spend with these men He sends two of them ahead to go into the city to rent a room to get all the fixings for the Passover supper. And I think he on purpose did not tell them to get a servant to wash the feet. Because that was a very important part of the ceremony, very important part of any fellowship, was to have a foot-washing servant, or at least a basin and a place to wash feet at the doorway. And can you picture Jesus standing there as all of the disciples are walking in, They're all filing in to find their place. They probably didn't even notice, or they looked at it and said, not my job. Not my job. And if you know anything about the culture of the day, they didn't just sit across the table. They reclined at the table. So there was a good possibility your feet would be my appetizer. And Jesus looked at this and used it as the greatest teaching moment for where the church is today. He stood up himself, and as he was washing the crud off of these feet, he's saying, I have come to show you how you're going to win the world. I have come to show you how you're going to deal with the dirty, rotten sinners, because I'm going to wash the crud off your feet, and as your master has done, you do likewise. So what does it look like for the church to wash the feet of a world that is filled with crud? Do we just stand back and watch, or do we get involved? If we get involved, what are we going to do? Are we going to pick at them? Are we going to persecute them? Are we going to expose them all over social media? Or are we going to start washing their feet? Are we going to get into relationship with dirty, rotten sinners? 
and wash their feet. Listen to the outcome of this story. Luke chapter 22. Jesus washes their feet. Their heads were probably just bowed in shame. Their faces were probably beat red. Peter again. All right, Lord, if you're going to wash my feet, don't stop there. I know. I'm a jerk. I'm an idiot. I blow it all the time. Wash my whole body. And Jesus said, Peter, you don't get it. You don't get it. It's not about the physical act of washing your feet. It's about cleaning the issues out of your heart. Listen to what Jesus says. After he has washed their feet, they have the Last Supper. In verse 31, Simon, Simon. Anytime Jesus uses your name twice in a sentence, something's coming. Something is coming. And I believe Jesus is saying, church, church. You have access to me anytime you want. You have fellowship with me anytime you want. You know that I will always wash the crud off your feet. No matter how bad your day is, no matter how bad your life is, you come into my presence, you sit around my table, and I will always wash the crud off your feet. But there's something I can't wash out, and that's the crud in your heart. Because that has to be exposed, and you need to do something about that. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked or demanded permission in the Greek to sift each of you like wheat. How'd you like that as a revelation? How'd you like that prophetic word? Simon, Simon, Satan has presented a demand note. This is a legal picture where the court is in session and somebody files a lawsuit against you. And you need to show up in court and defend yourself. Satan has demanded permission. This goes all the way back to the, the, the whole situation with Job. How in the world could God let this happen? Because God has a structure in his kingdom that's built on righteousness. It's built on justice. And if there is a case against any one of us, it has to be brought before the courts of heaven and has to be settled. Because if it's not settled, then there is a right to sue you and take away what was given to you. And Satan had a lawsuit against these 12 men. What do you think Satan and his demons were doing the whole time they were ministering? Taking notes. James and John, Peter, arrogance, 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 arrogance. And the claim was brought before the bench of heaven. These men are not worthy to be your disciples because they're filled with pride and arrogance, and I have the evidence to prove it. I have the date, I have the time, and I even have the quote. Satan has demanded permission. Satan has shown up with a demand note to take away your inheritance, to take away what belongs to you. Now we know that Jesus is interceding for us. That now under the blood of Jesus, no lawsuit sticks. Jesus looks at the prosecuting attorney and says it's been covered. It's been covered. Whatever the accusation has been paid for. But in this moment, we're expecting Jesus to jump in and rescue Peter and the group from this lawsuit. And what does Jesus do? I don't like Jesus when he does this. 
Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. That is a picture of throwing you up in the air, letting the wind hit you, and seeing what falls out. Exposing you to the elements and seeing what really is inside of you. Satan demanded permission. Jesus, you have protected these bunch of numbheads for three years. You know their frailties. You, you can't honestly tell me, Jesus, that you're going to entrust your whole kingdom to these men who are so filled with pride and arrogance that the minute you leave, they're going to be fighting with one another again to see who's the top dog. Peter thinks he's the top dog. James and John are right down behind him. And they're going to be fighting this thing out. Then you know as well as I do, Jesus, that the minute you walk away from them, it's going to be chaos. I demand that you give them over to me to prove that I'm right. Go backwards just a little bit. Jesus is sitting around this table with these 12 men. And the Gospel of Luke says he lusted after this moment. He looked at them, knowing who they were, knowing what they were capable of, and he said, I believe in you. I believe you can be the men that I need you to be. I believe in you so much that I'm willing to lay down my life and die, leave this planet in your hands. I believe in you. So when Satan presented the petition, Jesus didn't rescue them from the sifting. He didn't tell Satan, nope, they're my boys. Don't you touch them. Listen to Jesus' response. Simon, or I have pleaded with you in prayer. I have pleaded for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, Go and strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even to die. He didn't want to hear about this thing. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. You will deny that you even know me. Then Jesus asked, when I sent you out to preach the good news and you did not have money and travel bag and extra pair of sandals, did you need anything? No. But now, he said, it is time for you to stand on your own two feet. That was my paraphrase. It's time for you to stand because I'm going to back up. And I'm going to let the enemy sift you like wheat to see if the word I spoke to you is really in you or not. Everything that can be shaken is being shaken right now. But the one thing that God has his eyes on is what's happening in his church with this shakening. He believes in us. He sits around the table and he breaks the bread and shares the cup with us. He believes in his church. He will never take his eyes off the church. His church is the plan. And he's waiting for his church to see the revelation that they cannot do this without the Holy Spirit. They cannot do this without coming into a place of total surrender. So he looks at Peter and he says, but I have pleaded. That's another legal term. I have pleaded for you. I'm not going to rescue you. Now we can picture Jesus on his knees crying out for mercy. Father, you know, make him strong, make him strong. But that's not the picture. The word plead there is a legal term that means I am binding myself to you. 
the word picture is that Jesus is actually telling Peter, you are going to be shaken like you've never been shaken before, but I'm binding myself to you. I'm holding on to you. The shaking is going to be violent. It's going to knock the teeth out of your head, but I am not letting go. I have pleaded for you. I have bound myself to you. So when the enemy shakes you, the enemy is going to shake me. And then he says, I have prayed for you. I pleaded for you. I am bound to you. I will not let you go because I will not let your faith fail. And the word fail there is where we get our word eclipse. I will not let your arrogance eclipse my love. I will not let your superiority eclipse my self-sacrifice. Because if I'm holding on to you, the enemy is eventually going to see that it's not you that he's shaking, it's me that he's shaking, and he's already seen that doesn't work. But if you try to do this on your own, you're going to fail miserably. And Jesus has got his arms wrapped around his church right now, and he's saying, I'm going to let some things shake you to the core, but I am being shaken with you, and if you will allow me, I will not allow your faith to be eclipsed. By failure. I will not allow your faith to be eclipsed by your arrogance and pride because we will go through this together. And he said, when you have repented, the word repented there literally means when you've changed the way you look at things. When you start looking at things from my perspective, then you will go and strengthen your brothers. There is a great door of opportunity opening for the church. And we keep talking about the great harvest, the great revival. God is not going to release the revival to a bunch of people who are going to turn them into religious arrogance. He's going to release these people to a church who will first wash their feet, who will let these people who think that abortion is just the woman's right to choose to come into their homes and wash their feet. He's looking for a church who will allow those people on that side to have fellowship with me without me being, as Jeremiah said, disgruntled, upset, disgusted with these people. That's the harvest. Those are the people that Jesus died for. And he's shaking his body to get our attention. Peter, I'm not going to rescue you from this one, but I am going through it with you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to stand by and just watch what happens. I am going to hold on to you so tightly. You're going to feel like you're alone, but I'm going to hold on to you so tightly. Because when we come out of this together, you will represent me instead of me representing you. Because Jesus addressed the issue. Peter wanted Jesus to be just like them. Fit Jesus into our agenda. Fit Jesus into our ideologies. Fit Jesus into our political systems. Fit Jesus into whatever so we can have what we want to have. And Jesus is saying, that's not the way it's going to be. If you're with me, Peter, it's going to be the way that I want to have it. So we're going to go through this shaking together. We're going to go up and down and all over the place together. Because when we come out of this, you are going to represent me. You are going to represent me. For generations, the church in this country has stepped out of its promised land. We have watched this nation and the world go to hell, rot under our feet, because the fire truck has been in the garage for too long. 
And we just said, that's just the way it's going to be. It's just the way it's going to be. Let's build around it. And we have stepped out of the promised land and been pushed across the Jordan River. And we look at the promised land of, oh, it's going to be nice when the revival hits. How many generations have we been saying that? When the revival hits, when the revival hits, it's like the nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience, because of their arrogance, because of their unwillingness to surrender to the plan of God. They were not able to go into the promised land. So for 40 years, they wandered around. Oh, there it is. There's the revival. There's the billion soul harvest. I see it. I see it. And then we wander around for another generation and another generation. And in the meantime, we've lost those generations that we've wandered looking in a distance. In the distance was the mountains where the giants lived. And in our memory is that's the fire truck that was in the land that we can't get rid of. Let's just go back to where we were. At least we had a comfortable life. And then if you read the story where Joshua now gets charged with bringing the people across the Jordan River. After 40 years, Moses is dead. Church, what was before is dead. There is no normal to go back to. There is no normal to go back to. And if we do, we're just going to wander in the wilderness for another generation and watch another generation die under our watch. Joshua, Moses is dead. Church, pre-COVID, COVID was just a button. It has nothing to do with anything in particular other than a button that God used to crack this thing wide open to give us another opportunity to see. Church, Moses is dead. Stop mourning. Stop wishing. Stop waning. And get up. Joshua, get up and lead this people. That's a corporate word. Get up and lead. Get up. Look at the Jordan River. And if you read the story in Joshua, I'm not going to go there right now, but I want to just give you a quick highlight because this, I believe, is where God is leading his people. Once the shaking has taken place, once we finally let Moses die, once we stop wishing for what was, oh, it was so nice when we didn't have to do this stuff. It was so nice when we can just hug each other and we can come and do whatever we wanted to do when we wanted to do it. But it's a different world. Moses has died. And there in front of us is the Jordan River, and that was the boundary between where the wilderness was and where the promised land was. Joshua, get up and lead this people. But here's how I want you to do it. I want you to take the priests and hoist the ark onto their shoulders. And the moment they step into the Jordan, and they approach the Jordan, it was during flood season. So a normally about a hundred foot wide river was probably close to a half a mile. And where it normally was about 10 feet deep in the deepest spots, it was probably 30 or 40 feet deep. And it was very swift. There was no way that Joshua was going to lead this group of people, men, women, and children, across this swollen river. Why the timing now, God? Why don't you wait till after harvest? Wait till this thing dies down a little bit. Wait till things get comfortable. The word to Jeremiah, if you can't handle the peace, how are you going to handle the thicket by the Jordan, which literally means the swelling pride of the Jordan? In other words, it's a reference back to an allusion to when Joshua had to lead this people. Joshua, if you can't even exist in the wilderness with no pressure, for 40 years I provided for you, you didn't have to do anything. 
Now I'm going to bring you into the promised land and there's giants there. If you can't survive here, how are you going to survive there? So he brings us to this swollen river again as the church. And he's looking for the Joshua's who will do it God's way. It says, when the priests who carried the ark, the ark represented the government of God, not the government of the Republican Party, not the government of the Democratic Party, not the government of libertarians, not the government of this earth, but the government of the kingdom of God on the shoulders of the priests, the people of God. When the people of God are willing to submit to the government of God again, when we put the government of God on our shoulders instead of putting us on the government of God and using it the way we want. Well, the Bible says, the Bible says, people don't care what the Bible says. They want to see if you're walking in submission. They want to see if you're carrying the ark on your shoulders. If you're willing to put the government on your shoulders. Isaiah 9 says that Jesus, the son given to us, would put the government on his shoulders and the kingdom of his government would have no end to the government and the rule of his peace. And when they stepped in the water, it says the waters flew back. And I love this part. It says the waters went all the way back a great distance to a town called Adam. God is rolling the reproach of his people all the way back to the beginning. He's resetting us. What was the mandate in the garden? Be fruitful, multiply, and take dominion over the earth. God pushed the boundary all the way back to Adam. The waters rose up in a great heap at Adam. That's where it all started. And Jesus went all the way back. And it says the rest of the water just funneled right into the Dead Sea, right into the toilet bowl. I don't need that. I don't need your past, and I don't need what your prognostications are for the future. I need you in the moment. I need you to walk across this boundary. And it says when they walked across, the water parted and it was dry land. And then Joshua got the charge from God, take 12 stones out of the center of the river, center, right in the middle of this thing. Take 12 stones and tell these 12 men to take these stones and hoist them onto their shoulders. The representative of the government of God being on the shoulders of his people. Not standing on the rocks, but the rock standing on them. And build a memorial in Gilgal. And when your children see it, remind them that this was the place that God rolled our reproach all the way back to Adam and sent all of this stuff down into the Dead Sea, cleared it all away, and we walked across on dry land. But he also said, and then take 12 more stones and build a memorial in the middle of the Jordan River. No one's going to see that. The river closed over. Where, where are the stones? Why put something in the middle of a river that you're never going to see? Because about 1,400 years later, the Son of God stepped into the Jordan River. And if you look at the historical landmarks, it was probably almost in the exact location where those rocks were. Jesus steps into the Jordan River. John is in the middle, and at this point, the river is probably only about 100 feet wide again, so getting out to the middle was not difficult. And Jesus is standing there with John the Baptist. And instead of the rivers parting when the Son of God walked in, the heavens opened. We don't need natural things to move in order for the spiritual to take dominion. 
We don't need certain things in place in the natural in order for us to say, well, it's time for us to go across the river. Jesus is in the center of the river. Those rocks were a placeholder to remind the people that there's a day coming when Jesus would step into the middle of the same river that separated you from your promised land. He will now be in the middle of the river no matter what. And it's not the rivers that have to part anymore, but the heavens that open. And it says that the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove and remained on him. Pentecost. The promised land was not a place anymore. The promised land was a person. And the promised land was not a place they went to. The promised land was a place that came to them. The promised land is inside of you. All of the blessings and inheritance of God is inside of you. We are taking that to the people of this world who are caught between where they are and where they want to be. Because this Jordan River is hindering them. You and I need to step into the middle of this river. And we don't necessarily have to see the waters part physically. But the heavens have already opened. And there are those in the church who are still crying, God, would you rend the heavens and come down? And Jesus said, he already did. And he lives in you. So this is our wake-up moment. This is an opportunity. This is a place that the church has not been in our generation before. And I believe God is standing back, watching for a response. Jesus is holding on to us. But if you read the rest of the story, Peter did deny, and the rest of the disciples took off. Are we going to stay there? Are we going to go through it? Are we going to keep our shoulder on the plow? Are we going to see the Jordan part all the way back to our failure? All the way back to that place that disqualifies us, where the lawsuit has something against us? Push it all the way back? Get rid of all that junk and clear it out? Because a church has to lead a people across to the promised land of salvation. The harvest is going to follow us across the river. But our hearts have to be pure. His agenda has to be our agenda. His way has to be our way. And Peter, if you read the last part of the story, he and Jesus had a great moment. He was restored. And if you read the writings of Peter, there is a man who was humbled. There was a man who identified As a matter of fact, in one of his writings, he said, Peter, an elder, just like the rest of you. No more spiritual superiority. I'm in this with you guys. We're in this together. We are in this together. So let's just take a moment. Ainge, why don't you come on up and we can just release a blessing. Thank you, God. So just... Let's continue to just quiet our hearts. There's a lot we're thinking about right now. Paul told us in Philippians, be free from pride-filled opinions, for they will only harm your cherished unity. Don't allow self-promotion to hide in your hearts, but in authentic humility, put others first and view others as more important than yourselves. Abandon every display of selfishness, Possess a greater concern for what matters to others instead of your own interests. Mm. And consider the example that Jesus, the anointed one, has set before us. Let his mindset become your motivation. 
He existed in the form of God, and he gave no thought to seizing equality with God as his supreme prize. Instead, he emptied himself of his outward glory by reducing himself to the form of a lowly servant. He became human. He humbled himself and became vulnerable, choosing to be revealed as a man and was obedient. He was a perfect example, even in his death, a criminal's death by crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God exalted him and multiplied his greatness. He has now been given the greatest of all names. Live a cheerful life without complaining or division among yourselves, for then you will be seen as innocent, faultless, and pure children of God, even though you live in the midst of a brutal and perverse culture. Mm -hmm. For you will appear among them as shining lights in the universe, offering them the words of eternal life. Holy Spirit, will you clean our hearts? We are laid bare right now before you. We are feeling your conviction, but we're feeling your grace and your love. Yes. We will not do the shame thing. Mm -mm. We will not be harsh on ourselves, but we will be vulnerable before you. So, Father, what you do right now in this moment, what could take us months and months to try to do by ourselves? We're asking you to readjust us right now. I know I need it. I'm including myself in this prayer. Come with your fiery love, God. Yes, Lord. And burn out the things that we've allowed into our heart. Come, Father, come. Come, Holy Spirit. All over this room, every heart, mm-hmm. open before you. Thank you, Jesus. Just stay, stay in this moment. Just speak to him. Yield to him. Let him do what he needs to do. You can move out of this place, we can move out of this place changed. Yes. Like when you go into the chiropractor and he cracks you back into place, well, let's just let him do it now. Mm-hmm. Purifying love. We repent. We repent. Thank you for your forgiveness, God. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. We lay down our opinions. We lay down our faulty perspectives. And we choose to take yours right now. Yes. Burn arrogance and pride out of us, God. Thank you.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Sweep over this room, Holy Spirit. Yes, Father, we willingly take those stones of government, your government, and put them on our shoulders. Father, as a church, universal, we repent for having cast off restraints, for not having coming under the authority of the people you set in place. Father, we want to honor your body. We want to honor those who you call. Father, we choose to let that boulder of leadership and government rest on our shoulders. Father, we bless this house. Lord, we bless the leadership. We bless Daryl and Lynn. Father, in this new season, we thank you that there is a new understanding of how to walk and how to live and how to come into agreement, how to walk as one new man. So, Father, we bless this house. Father, we thank you that this is a house that's going to bring the love and the grace, but also the kingdom of God to this region. Father, we just release over this house those who are going to take the mountains back. Lord, those who are not afraid, like Caleb was, was filled with courage to go back to Hebron and knock the giants off the top. Father, we declare that this is a group of people who are kings of the hill. For it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised up as the chief of all mountains. And Father, we declare over this house that this is a house where chiefs of mountains are going to be raised up. Lord, where there's courage to go forward. As you told Joshua to be strong and filled with courageous courage. Lord, we thank you that this body is filled with courage. Father, we thank you. And in this season that we're in, that great and mighty things are about to happen. And your church is going to be right with you in sync and in step. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about our church, visit faithworship.org. Thank you.